Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Anita Lee about her paper, Solidarity, the Role for Non-Black People of Color in Promoting Racial Equity. Dr. Lee received her PhD from Western Michigan University, which is actually where we met a number of years ago. She has worked professionally in the field of ABA since 2010 in the areas of severe problem behavior with clients diagnosed with autism, emotional behavior disorders, and other developmental disabilities in a variety of settings. In addition, she has held instructional design consulting roles and teaching appointments at several universities. I really enjoyed and learned a lot from this interview. I'm very excited to share it with you all. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Anita Lee. Hello, Anita, and welcome to BAPCAST. Hi, Cody. Great to be here. We're excited to have you today. Thank you so much for taking some time to share information about this really, really important article that you published in BAP. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. And uh, thank you for listening to those out there who are listening. Yeah, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this topic and, and, and take a lot from it. Before we jump into the paper, we like to begin by learning about the guests and maybe your background and what brought you to this line of research. So would you mind sharing some of that with us? Yeah, so I'm currently a faculty specialist at Western Michigan University. Um, My background actually, you know, found behavior analysis through the experimental analysis of behavior. Um, So I did that work in my undergrad, and then I learned that you could apply this stuff to people. So then I received my uh, master's degree in ABA, and I worked um, as a clinician for several years, and then you know, received my doctorate um, at Western Michigan University, actually alongside Dr. Morris. <laughs> oh, Broncos. Yep. And, you know, in terms of, so this is a new area for me and sort of a scary one too, but with everything that's been going on and, you know, sort of my own, I think, feelings on the matter, I started really thinking about like, wow, you know, we, we want to save the world with behavior analysis yet why do we not do that and that you know why do we not apply it to these you know bigger and broader issues and so i I just started you know looking at some of these areas within diversity um some of my earlier research focused on more like gender in terms of you know promoting women at least in academia especially in the context of behavior analysis and then you know now you know trying to dip my toes in this area but this is this was really a piece I wrote for myself selfishly. Um, and, you know, I just really wanted to help conceptualize, um, you know, maybe some of the issues that other people, um, you know, non-Black people of color uh, might have been struggling with with some of the current recent events as well. I find that the articles I write for myself selfishly 
end up being my best work. <laughs> so, you know, I think why write a paper in the first place? I think it's because you want that paper and you wish that, you know, that was a resource available to people. And so, um, you know, you said that this paper was one you wrote for yourself. I suspect there are a lot of people in your situation who have been looking for this paper and now you've added that. So, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really cool resource. So there's, there's so much to unpack with this particular topic. Could you just start by giving us a general overview of, of this paper and sort of the topic around this paper? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, the general topic is and has been systemic racism, right? And there's just been, you know, I think particularly the focus on the police brutality cases just really highlight like, wow, this just happens over and over and over again and nothing ever changes. And it starts to really, you know, of course it's tra um, traumatic to, you know, black, indigenous, um, non-black people of color, but it's all, it just starts to become such a demoralizing situation that, you know, we have a lot of, you know, I guess I contribute to this like voicing these advocacy, but then you oftentimes don't necessarily see the, I guess, desired behavioral actions, mm. um, you know, and this isn't a piece about police brutality, even though that's a huge part of systemic racism and, you know, part of my issues in writing this paper. Um, but part of that was, you know, you would expect that, especially being a minority member, that a lot of people from different, you know, diverse backgrounds would sort of recognize, right, the importance of solidarity and also just compassion um, for people of different racial backgrounds. But oftentimes you don't see that, which is always baffling and frustrating to me. <laughs> yeah, and I love the analysis you provide of, of some of the sort of behavioral mechanisms that may be contributing to sort of non-solidarity, mm -hmm. if that's a term. At the beginning of your paper, you you provide a reference to Matsuda et al. 2020, talking about a review they did looking to see what interventions or articles have been published by behavior analysts focused on reducing racism. Could you speak a little bit about what that the results of that paper were and, and how that kind of maybe affected the type of work you're doing here? Yeah, that was such an important paper because, you know, I think the premise itself isn't, you know, it's like, oh, we're just going to do a literature review and just summarize on the topic of racism. Um, and what they basically found was that, well, we, we found zero articles <laughs> that focus on reducing racism, you know, and I think um, we maybe sort of get lost sometimes in the applied world with, you know, obviously there's competing contingencies and aspects like that, but also thinking about like possibilities and interpretations for these greater issues at hand. Um, and so I commend the authors because, you know, I think it was intentionally supposed to be a lit review, but what they ended up doing was pivoting and really just using it to discuss like, okay, what do we mean by racism from a behavior analytic framework? Um, contributes to racist actions? You know, what do we mean by racism and so forth? And I think it's just a really great introduction article um, to thinking conceptually on these broader topics. I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes when I teach like 
concepts related to behaviorism, it's really difficult for students to extrapolate um, these principles of behavior to everyday things and phenomenon or, you know, more abstract or broader concepts like racism. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was shocked when, when reading the results of the Metsuda paper, learning that our very powerful science really hasn't been utilized to address such an important socially impactful issue. And so when sort of taking that information, knowing that behavior analysts really haven't taken on this issue much, you sort of opened up your introduction to talking about some of the work being done or pretty much all of the work being done to promote cultural understanding really being geared only to white practitioners. Can you speak about why that, why that may be and, and what the particular issue would be with something like that? Yeah. So, you know, I don't think any of the citations that I explicitly cited, um, you know, specifically say like this is for white practitioners, but as you read some of these articles and papers, it's very evident that the audience is meant to be for majority members. And so, you know, a lot of it is just talking about how, you know, cultural backgrounds differ from your, you know, from yours and the your being one that's a majority member. And I think that makes sense considering if you look at the field as a whole, psychology as a whole, it is largely dominated by, you know, white practitioners. Um, there's not really anything wrong with that. But I think part of that too is sometimes when we just have, papers that are written in such a way, and this was, you know, also particularly geared towards practice specifically, you start to lose a little bit of the belongingness of, you know, people who don't look like majority members, or maybe who don't really run into those issues. And so I sort of wrote this paper with this emphasis of, okay, you know, advocacy sounds like a very white phenomenon that, you know, I think people typically think of as sort of a privilege to do those things. And I think it is, um, but also it's something that we all need to strive and work towards um, because, you know, on an individual level, right, it does contribute to changes within a systemic level or so I hope. <laughs> and so part of that is, you know, just kind of emphasizing that, well, we also want papers directed, you know, written by people of color and then also directed towards people of color as well. And that's where you sort of bring in your particular contribution in this paper, which is gearing toward non-Black peoples of color and how there can be solidarity and advocacy um, amongst those groups. Right at the beginning of your paper, you describe solidarity or you define solidarity and you speak about sort of the, the, the difference between cultural competition and cooperation. Now I know that sort of both of those topics are sort of vast and there's some pretty heady analyses within something like that but could you could you speak to what solidarity is and how that relates to competition and cooperation yeah so i you know essentially talk about solidarity as just you know behaviorally speaking overt actions that you know challenge or i think i might have mentioned punish as well um, pre-existing racial attitudes, and then also, you know, modeling appropriate behavior, and then demonstrating equivalences between um, injustices between groups. And so that's to really help to, again, promote more of what I call cultural cooperation, right? 
people of different cultural backgrounds have different experiences. And so, but part of that is you can still determine these analogies right between them. And it's rather than cultural competition, which looks at, well, this racial group has suffered more than this group, or this group doesn't really help us, right? That never helps to really facilitate that point of, you know, essentially this nurturing and compassionate behaviors that we want to see to help each other, essentially. Um, to provide like a simple, right, even simpler analogy, it's we always talk about, we always want to emphasize reinforcement over, you know, punishment and these other aspects. It's very, you know, of course, I'm really reducing it to that <laughs> point, but it's, you know, similar along that lines. Within your section talking about cultural competition and cooperation, you bring up sort of cultural selection or evolution, and you, you make a really interesting argument, I think that when we typically think about selectionism, we think that it would probably select for competition when in fact cooperation may actually be much more adaptive and therefore potentially be something that would be selected through cultural evolution. Could you talk about the traits of cooperation versus competition and why cooperation may float up to the top? Yeah, you know, and just as a review, you know, Skinner talks about three levels of selection at the biological level, which we would just, you know, refer to as natural selection, um, at the operant level, which is essentially operant conditioning, and then at a cultural level, which is, you know, these larger group practices. Um, so even just speaking from the natural selection perspective, just I use that just because it seems like the easiest one to have people really think about selection um, since more people think about it that way. Um, you know, I think even right, just speaking colloquially to a friend, you might say things like, well, that's, you know, natural selection, survival of the fittest, right? It's all this implication that the strong survive, the weak do not, it's every person for themselves. And you sort of see that mentality somewhat within, you know, our culture as well, especially since we, you know, here at least in the United States, it tends to be more individualistic. Um, but if you actually look at the literature from evolutionary psych, that's not the case, <laughs> you know, and so I try to use, you know, the kind of evolutionary biology to really reiterate this point that, you know, this idea that it has to be competition to survive, to be adaptive just isn't true, you know, even on a cellular level. Um, so I think, I don't know if I make this analogy in the paper, I might, um, but even just thinking about like your cells, right? If every cell was for itself, uh, you never see cells recombine and form new cells, right? New organisms and so forth. Um, and so even within that, at a cellular level, your body's cooperating with other organs, with other, you know, cells and components, right? To sort of build you as a larger person. Um, and there's also some, you know, both conceptual papers and I guess mostly conceptual just because this is, you know, based more on some you know evolutionary background within behavior analysis and not where, you know, people have talked about how, you know, in terms of human development that they really think cooperation helped us facilitate language and communication that, you know, as 
cave people, we essentially started sharing resources. We started living within groups and all of that helped to contribute to our evolutionary success. Um, and then even at, you know, just to bring it more to the applied sector, um, we see that cooperation helps, you know, when you see altruistic behaviors, right? Even um, like basic analogies, like the prisoner's dilemma, you know, choosing the competitive or selfish act typically hurts the group. Um, and, you know, we also see this manifest in terms of gains. So at a recent presentation, I cited a paper that just looked at cooperative tutoring versus competitive tutoring. And really what that meant was just um, a way to earn reinforcement. Either the class members themselves would accrue points for the entire class or they would um, accrue points for themselves and basically compete with one another. And they found that in the cooperative format, um, more people actually did better. And they also, of course, tend to like it, right? Because within that, you also promote success for your group members. And so I think just really driving that point down that, you know, fundamentally, it's not that competition you know, competition makes sense in some cases, but it's not that that's a fundamental adaptive, um, you know, necessity. And with the sort of argument laid for why cooperation is adaptive and is something that individuals should, should emphasize and lean into, your paper segues into the anti-black attitudes in culturally diverse households and, and sort of talks about some of the negative i suppose stereotypes or sort of behaviors that maybe uh, some diverse households hold can, can you speak a little bit about what you were talking about within that section yeah, so um, the purpose of me writing that section was to really showcase that, you know, even though you may be a minority member, that doesn't mean that you haven't contributed to, you know, anti-Black attitudes or even actions. And some of these things just might be so ingrained and maybe not even, you know, detected. Um, and so I just wanted to point out some examples from my own background. So um, I'm Chinese American, so specifically um, Cantonese, um, which is a dialect that is really more of Southern China and Hong Kong. And so the example I use in terms of like verbal behavior we use, and this is from my own experiences, is that growing up, I typically hear the word hakwai to refer to black people. Um, and guai means like, like ghost or demon, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, likewise, you you can also say bakwai, which is the equivalent of a white person, um, but I don't, I personally haven't heard that as much within um, my childhood and sort of my experiences. I usually hear hakwai, um, but you know, the appropriate term that's not really a slang is hakyan, which is just black person, <laughs> and then bakyan, which is white person. And actually, in my experience, I hear bakyan more, white person more, and I hear hakwai more, which is like black ghost or demon. Um, and, you know, that was something like I would say that I wouldn't even really notice, um, but sort of writing this paper and, you know, of course, needing some example, I thought, wow, that's a really good one because that's something that's so assumed, you know, and that is right. Just because we're using that doesn't mean we're trying to refer to this person as negative or harmful, but it still does just with the implication of the choice of words we're using. 
Um, and then even just, you know, you see a lot of right, discrimination, even within um, some Latinx groups, um, because Afro Latinx is quite different. And so you often do see colorism, you know, across a lot of minority group and diverse cultures where paler skin, right, the closer or the more white you look, the more westernized features, those are typically considered beautiful. Um, whereas the more stereotypical features, you know, the darker you are, you know, the wider your face, wider your nose, etc., um, tend to be attributed to not as beautiful, right? But even that has that sort of anti-Black attitude ingrained within it. And so I just wanted to use that to point out that, you know, if you if you look carefully, you'll see that. <laughs> and some of these things you might not even realize were anti-Black because it just becomes the sort of cultural standard that you participate in. You provide two sort of hypotheses as to why you may see some of those behaviors in, in non-Black peoples of color. Um, you talk about like assimilation to white American behaviors. And you also talk about um, like the focus on their own struggles or comparison between their own struggles. Could you elaborate a little bit on those points? Yeah, um, you know, and so part of my own frustration is, okay, obviously people of different backgrounds will struggle, you know, within, if they are a minority member within a majority group. Um, you know, so my, I was born here in the States, but English was actually technically my second language. So I was in the ESL program for a few years. And so my upbringing in elementary school, my experience was quite different um, just because I did have those issues of not really understanding like cultural norms of hanging out with your friends and, you know, doing kind of these after school things. Um, I had that experience of the weird lunch at school and I really just wanted to bring a sandwich like everyone else. Um, and so, you know, part of that, though, you, you still start to see people who have had these you know, negative or even traumatic experiences. But then when they hear about, you know, like cases of police brutality, they don't ex they don't show empathy and they say, well, they shouldn't have done that or oh well, we know, you know, these people tend to engage in more crime, right? which doesn't really make sense based on their own experiences. Um, and so, you know, part of that I mentioned is people could be acting that way because, right, they're just sort of, you know, assimilating to the majority culture and that these, this is the rhetoric that they hear. These are sort of the explanations and what people generally talk about or attribute these causes to. And so that's just simple, like, imitation, right? This is what I hear around me. That's just what I believe based on my community. Um, another one too could just be their own personal experiences. So I use the example of um, the AAPI hate, um, especially within um, you know Chinese Americans with COVID, where you know our our. 45 would refer to it as the Chinese virus, which then of course contributed to the rise of AAPI crime. And ironically, you know for. Chinese Americans, we look like other Asian Americans. And so it's difficult for people to identify if they're really Chinese, but it doesn't really matter if you look like this group, um, there's harm for it. And I think there's some, you know, just colloquially speaking, almost sounds like some uh, sort of resentment that, you know, we see Black Lives Matter and all these sort of white people, these businesses sort of advocating for Black Lives Matter, but nobody's 
taking care of, you know, Asian Americans. They're just letting these attacks happen. Um, and I've even seen some like direct comments made by Asian Americans that are actually not in support of Black Lives Matter because they saw that some of the assailants, um, you know, for those AAPI members were black and they would sort of use that as a justification like, well, black people hurt us. So why would we help protect them when they're hurting us and our kind, which you can see how it's so easy to derive those. And I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm not blaming, um, you know, people for having these types of attitudes. Um, so it's a difficult thing that I'm asking, right, that you see these things, you might have colleagues that don't share, you know, those opinions, and it's tough to show solidarity when you feel isolated from that. It makes a lot of sense. And I think you did a really, really nice job in the paper of laying out those, those hypotheses as to, to why you might see some of those behaviors. And then you sort of segue into some of the mecha um, mechanisms of cooperation to increase solidarity. So building the argument that non-Black peoples of color should have solidarity, some of the things that may prevent that from occurring, but then talking ultimately about where do we go from here and, and, and what can we do? So could you share some of your thoughts around how to create more solidarity and cooperation? Yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, we'll talk about some resources and I think definitely exposing yourself to content like this helps because I think that does help to contribute, you know, to someone interested in engaging in solidarity-based actions or, or just really, it's really just anti-racist actions to showcase that other people are talking about it. Other people are also, talking about their struggles as well. And so I think that helps to facilitate at least some sense of, you know, belongingness in terms of helping facilitate that. Um, some main mechanisms that I talk about too is that, well, when you start to engage in like what I call direct reciprocity, you know, you're, it, that's sort of what I refer to as like a tit for tat strategy where I do things for you and I sort of benefit from that as well, you know? And so part of that is, okay, I, will continue to learn more. I'm listening to this podcast. I'm reading these articles. People will see that. People will praise me for it. And I think that's honestly a good start, right? Direct reinforcement is definitely something we start with with our learners. I think it would make sense that we would start on such a difficult topic here. Um, you know, seeking mentorship, even modeling anti-racist language or correcting yourself or noticing, I think you do get some benefit from those and that people do start to notice that, oh, thanks for indicating your pronouns or thank you for correcting that, right? Even if you make, you know, a minor, um, you know, uh, sort of a mistake regarding to how you're phrasing things. But then after that, right, just because we can't expect that people are going to directly reinforce every instance of behavior you're going to, you know, exhibit. We, of course, then work on sort of fading that out in what I call the indirect reciprocity, which is at this point, you are essentially trying to contribute to the community without the need or expectation or even the opportunity that you'll receive direct reinforcement for those actions, which is more difficult, right? That's definitely attributing to more you know, if we we're thinking about act moving in line with your values that that's sort of the reinforcer, um, you know, you're following some 
your own contingency specify simuli, right? That's a, a bigger part of our sort of ver verbal repertoire there. And so at that level, right, that is contributing to things that could be volunteering to, you know, your time with an organization that emphasizes these things that could even be, um, you know, when organizations like ABAI send out surveys on diversity, right? Yeah, sometimes it takes a while to fill those out, but right, putting in that time helps them. You don't really necessarily get anything out of it. You know, they might have a chance for some sort of, you know, reward, but that the benefit there is really, again, for the organization as a whole. And so that would be some example of that is to, okay, let me start doing these actions to help facilitate. Let me vocalize what's good or maybe what needs um, revision and revamping to help facilitate this. And then also um, what I like about it too is, you know, from an academic perspective, you also, you know, this, even though I write, I, I wrote a paper like this, I'm not an expert and it always makes me nervous to talk about this issue because I'm just like, oh gosh, I hope I don't offend anyone. And it's pretty scary, but it also is a reminder for me as an educator that yes, I need to grow personally, but I should also facilitate, you know, these works and highlight works of BIPOC, you know, that other people might not, right? And sort of highlight, well, this person did this too. And these are sort of different ways to incorporate behavior analysis, um, you know, than sort of the norm. And so I think that would hopefully help to facilitate um, some, you know, solidarity aligned actions as well. And then um, sort of the, the last two are on a greater level. So it's network and group selection. And so at this point, you know, you're really making choices at more of an organizational level. Um, and so just sort of for the sake of me rambling for too long, merge them together, um, that you are starting to right, be selective about the organizations you support and then also um, how you shape those organizations as well where you want to support anti-racist organizations, um, which can be a scary term for a lot of organizations to use, which is interesting. Um, there's a great conference and someone mentioned that, you know, it's interesting how people are willing to call it diversity, equity, inclusion, but they won't say anti-racist. <laughs> um, and, you know, anti-racist is just right being active in terms of trying to, dismantle a lot of these systemic practices, whereas just not racist is very passive, but you're still sort of, you're not really doing anything to change the systemic issues. And so, you know, voicing your concerns about like, hey, we need more representation of BIPOC. We need to think about equitable practices, right? If this is a group that we don't support their practices and they don't really support appropriate members, let's not support this group anymore, um, which can be a difficult thing to do, especially at a greater level. And this could be, you know, within the context of employment, this could be within the context of like the field, it could be the context of like organizations within the field. So groups are right, just collection of people. So it can, it can apply however um, it might apply most to you. Your comment about anti-racism being something that maybe many behavior analysts aren't entirely comfortable with is interesting considering that sort of the the root of anti-racism as a as a term is action is behavior and so when i was first reading about that term i thought it would be something that a lot of behavior analysts would instantly gravitate to because it was talking about behaviors yeah, I agree. Um, 
you know, I think maybe I hadn't dedicated as much time to this, you know, like 10 years ago, right? It's just not something I really thought of as much, but with current events, it really just forces you to, and as, you know, more literature is coming out and as I start to read more, I'm like, oh gosh, this makes so much sense, you know? And I, like you said, I really just, I don't think anti-racist is a bad word and I think it makes a lot of sense, but it does seem to make a lot of people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's, it's, it's interesting to me too, um, you know, I'm a BCBAD, but I also consider myself, right, a behavior analyst conceptually and a behaviorist at heart. And so I, for me, it was pretty easy to sort of apply this framework to like, oh gosh, like how does this work with, you know, all of these scary big issues? But I do oftentimes see people, especially online, who just really have a difficult time with it. And, you know, this sort of make the argument that, well, ABA is really something I do, it's my job, but it's mm. not really my worldview, which is always interesting to me because I'm like, how could it not be? <laughs> how do you compartmentalize like that? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, that's a strange thought. I, like you, I think I'm a behaviorist at heart and perhaps, perhaps that's somewhat due to, to our experience getting into behavior analysis at the undergraduate level where that might be a little bit more conceptual at least in my experience was a little bit more of a conceptual introduction mm -hmm. so perhaps that's it but yeah I, I, to me I, I can't really separate my myself as a behavior analyst as a as a practitioner and as a sort of behaviorist uh, in terms of my worldview yeah I'll give an example um so I went to the University of Florida and shout out to Dr. Dallery I took a behaviorism course towards I think my senior year and I just remember him saying sort of very provocatively you know intentionally said to the class there's no such thing as free will <laughs> and I was just really fine with that I was like yeah that makes sense you know but a lot of the class was a little upset like what do you mean like of course I have free and I was just like no I, I get it <laughs> So maybe that was a, maybe that helped me realize I was more of a behaviorist at heart than anything else. Yeah, that is the uh, determinism is a tough pill to swallow, I think, initially, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. So one of the things I wanted to say about this paper, as you sort of defined the specific mechanisms of cooperative action, is not only did you define them well in your paper, but you what I loved about the end of your paper is that you provide specific actionable sort of items or things that people could immediately do, which again, sort of looking at from a behavior analytic perspective, I love it. So, you know, I'm not talking about this just conceptually, although you do provide a conceptual sort of framework, you're saying here are actions, examples of actions that anyone can take right now and, and begin making hopefully an impact on this in this area. Yeah, um, I, you know, I think part of this area in general, a lot of times people are really intimidated, um, you know, because they're afraid to talk about these things or just because like, oh, we don't talk about things like race, religion and so forth, but it's important to talk about those things. And I think sometimes people, I think offering a place to be vulnerable where you can, you know, be okay to ask questions um, helps to facilitate that, but then also, right, um, the analogy I always give my classes when I talk about this topic is, well, it's right, it's shaping, um, but within shaping, if you don't 
do anything, uh, you <laughs> never reach the terminal response, right? There's nothing for us to reinforce. And so, you know, part of shaping is reinforcement and extinction, or, you know, maybe even punishment, but you have to do things to get closer to where you want to be. Um, and if you don't do that, if you're just really avoid it, right, because it's safe, you don't want to face those things, but you'll, you're never going to work on that repertoire either. Right. Yeah. We, you need some behavior to be emitted so that you can shape it. Right. <laughs> right. And I think you give people, if we're thinking about it in terms of beginning to emit behavior, I think you provide some really helpful prompts, if you will, within the paper where you're saying, you know, here are some things that you should immediately do. And so for the listeners out there to look at this paper, if you just scroll right to the bottom of it, it literally just in, in, in a bullet bulleted format describes specific actions that people should consider. And so really helpful paper all around. For people who are interested in this topic, are there other resources or things you think they may want to check out? Oh gosh, there's a lot. <laughs> you know, I think I talk about like um, a cultural revolution at the end, just sort of in relation to people's own cultural backgrounds. But I think we're definitely seeing that from a behavior analytic framework where like, that's pretty exciting. If you look at the new issue and, you know, online first articles and behavior analysis and of practice, um, there's just a lot that are sort of voicing different thoughts and perspectives, you know, self-reflection, but also practical ones in relation to like treatment assessment. Um, so I think there's just been a lot of resources out there. Um, I think in terms of specific resources. So gosh, I don't have to like wrap my head around it just because there's so many. So one that I really like, and this is a new paper, and I sincerely apologize to the author if I do not say your last name correct, because this is one of my weakest skills. It's like I just butcher names, any name, is um, Macha, Macha Lusek et al. Um, just published a paper in BAP that's called Sustaining Personal Activism behavior analysts as anti-racist accomplices. Hmm. And I think they also do a really nice job of just highlighting like, okay, like, you know, self-management, right? If you're trying to change any behavior, if you wanna eat better, if you wanna exercise more, right? What are those conditions that you need to evoke that? Okay, now let's make the analogy to anti-racist behaviors, right? Just like Cody was saying, it, it's operationalized, you know, we can apply that too. It's also behavior. So I think that's a really nice paper that's new um, that talks about, you know, what are some things that you can do that is anti-racist. Um, and that's sort of along the lines of, you know, what I think what some people might enjoy about my paper is that it's a little bit shorter and it, you know, tends to be a little bit more direct in terms of like, these are the behaviors to do. <laughs> um, another paper is by, um, Dr. Joel Najowski, and so she talks about, uh, gosh, I don't have the, the title at hand, but it's basically, it's something like uh, toward creating an anti-racist um, graduate program. And I really like that just because I know there are so many students out there in master's program, and there's just a lot of faculty within behavior analysis out there. And I just really liked how she also laid out like, okay, as a student, you know, if you're an instructor working with students, here are some considerations for like equitable practices and things to cover in your coursework. Um, if you're an administrator, right, here are some like policies to keep in mind, you know, and so sort of bridging at like those different levels um, 
I think that's also really helpful because as you know, um, academia tends to be one of those I don't, I don't know if oppressor is the right word, but it definitely upholds a lot of these, you know, sort of systemic issues that we have in terms of like privilege, in terms of sort of um, this general exploitation and expectation um, mm -hmm. that, uh, that really disenfranchises on um, people who don't have, you know, economic freedom or time or leisure to do those things, right? Like you have to interred you have to do your hours for free volunteer um, put in that commitment before you get offered something um so i think that's just helpful to start noticing that from that and hopefully what that also means from an academic level is that we can help facilitate um um you know and alleviate some of those oppressive practices that we sort of becomes expectation and i know probably you and i have had that experience in scoper it's like you just have to suffer <laughs> you know you do things for free you suffer you don't make money um but it's it's really easy to do that when you're single and you sort of are financially okay or have some other sources of income but it's harder when you are you know if you're if you have a family or you can't relocate if you're you know um if you're disabled then you can't relocate and so forth too right um some other papers so um from an obm perspective i know um Akpapuna, choi johnson and lopez also wrote a good paper in terms of like sort of i think they they don't use the word anti-racism but it's like diversity and multiculturalism from an obm context i think that might be interesting for a lot of people who maybe work as you know clinical directors or run agencies or organizations i think that might be a cool way to sort of connect what we're talking about on an organization that's not just academia and so that and that paper was published in um the journal of <laughs> organizational behavior management surprisingly and i think that was a recent paper as well i also encourage readers to check out the behavior analytic conceptualization of like police brutality um just because i do think a lot of those do a really nice job at highlighting um what we mean by oppressive practices and tying into current events. Um, so you and Dr. Hollins have a great paper in terms of relating police brutality to um, treatment of clients by direct care staff, which I think makes a lot of sense. And, you know, having worked in severe behaviors, I definitely see that, you know, the sort of the shows vision, like, wow, that's such a great analogy. Um, I recently reviewed a paper and I uh, offered many um, references in this topic too. Um, let's see. Uh, Machado Lugo also was another recent paper that talked about like sort of the contingencies around, you know, police brutality and management around that and sort of why. Um, O'Neill et al. in 2019 in Behavior Analysis and Practice, I think that was actually one of the first papers I saw um, that came out that was really talking about like just police training in general and, you know, sort of looking at it, not just from a conceptual um, perspective, but also like, okay, this is how we can train um, police in terms of the, this is something that we've done. And so that might be also another interesting paper regarded to that topic. Awesome. That is, that is an incredible list. Of, <laughs> it's a long list. <laughs> it's amazing. And I, I knew having known you for a while and know how well read you are in general but on this topic as well I knew you'd provide a great resource <laughs> list so we'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes so don't worry if you couldn't keep up your penmanship with the the list that Anita was providing um, you can just find those articles right in our show notes so anything else to to close out this interview Anita any any last comments you know I think 
just listening to this podcast, I think, you know, part of your own reactions to it. Um, if you were listening, you're thinking like, "Ugh, I hate everything she's saying. Well, thank you for listening. You know, <laughs> even if you didn't like it and you had those emotional responses, I think that's still pretty cool that you listened all the way through, even especially for uncomfortable topics, because, right, that, that's why we don't like to do those things. It makes us feel yucky or I don't like this and we just turn it off. But if you manage to do that, even if you're filled with anger and criticism, so at least, at least you listened. <laughs> you know, I think that would, I would argue, still a staff towards solidarity and a staff towards anti-resistaction. <laughs> just beginning step, that little stuff. Um, and then also, if you really liked this topic and this sort of like, yeah, yeah, like all of this stuff I like, I really encourage you to sort of contribute to what's out there. Um, you know, if you're a student that could be like presenting on these topics, right? Maybe bringing it to the attention of your faculty. Um, maybe, some, you know, a lot of times faculty, there's so much new articles that are published, that are out, that they don't always know what's out there. And so even sharing it with them, like, oh, I thought this was cool and this is related, or, you know, these other papers were related to some things we talked about would be great. Um, and then also, um, you know, in terms of contribution too, I always like the idea of people getting more involved at like presenting at conferences to talk about these issues, um, ultimately writing a paper, which as Cody and I probably know can be the most diversive one <laughs> in terms of effort in the reviewer comments. Um, but it's, it's really cool to get that level where you're like, I, I did this thing and it is out there. You know, I can see it there on this website. But even if you want to start a beginning step about, you know, topic you might be interested in, you know, presenting a poster on it, um, presenting a talk at a conference, I think there's a lot of state and local conferences that would love to hear more on topics like this. Um, you know, don't feel like those are places meant for doctor so-and-so, you know, it's really meant to sort of highlight voices. Um, and so I would argue that's another step to take to, you know, right, that's one of my indirect reciprocity is that you have lots to say and to comment on too. And, you know, I think, especially now with how important this topic is, I think there would be a lot of people interested in helping you um, present and be able to, you know, kind of create a conceptualization out there too. But yeah, that's, I think that's all I wanted to say. I love that. And I love the perspective on if you just made it through this episode that that you're you're absolutely right it, it is a step in the in the right direction if it if it's a topic that you're not generally um, interested in or, or like hearing about so thank you for all those folks who are now to this point and anita thank you so much for for sharing all this information and, and bringing your wisdom to this topic it's it's been uh, a pleasure to interview you on this and it's been really helpful and really informative for me to both read your paper and see you present on this a number of times. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you for having me. It was great. Before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. The links are available in the show notes. I'd like to thank a few people for making this podcast a reality. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the Journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. 
And thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.